today. We thank you for what you have led us through this past week. Many of us celebrated Thanksgiving. And like I mentioned earlier, sometimes this is, a, this is both a, a joyful time and sometimes this is a, a very difficult time, a dark time, a heartbreaking time. Lord, you've brought us to your house. As Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, you are the God of all comfort. So I pray that you would comfort anybody who needs comforting at this time and that you would open all of our ears and hearts to hear what you have for us this morning that your name would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. God can use a lot of different and unique ways to bring someone to himself. For some of us, it was simply reading the word of God that opened our eyes to the truth. For some of us, it was a friend or family member who shared and taught salvation through Jesus Christ to us, and may have even helped in leading us in our prayer of repentance and commitment to God. Some people grew up in a church-going household, while others grew up in a family that was nowhere close to that. And beyond the seemingly normal ways of coming to Jesus, there are crazy, supernatural, unexplainable ways that God also calls people to himself. There are stories, even in this modern day, especially in places where the gospel is not fully known or not fully established, stories of God still raising people from the dead and those witnessing this putting their faith in Jesus. There are stories of miraculous healing that bring people to God. And there are still stories of people, especially raised in different religions, who have dreams about Jesus that are so powerful that when they wake up, they renounce that religion and start following Jesus. And, and therefore have to deal with a lot of persecution in that. In our passage today, we have an account pretty early on in the history of humanity where a man who, for all intents and purposes, is not a believer in the one true God. His family is, but he is not. And, but he has a supernatural encounter with that God that changes his life forever. We've also referenced this experience a couple of times in our Gospel of John series, so I thought we could have a special message on this original experience, which Jesus then references in his conversation with Nathaniel or Bartholomew, uh, who he called to follow him in discipleship. So, if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to Genesis chapter 28. We're going to be starting in verse 10. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Uh, please also turn to the book of Genesis. You don't have to go very far. It's the very first book in the Bible. So you don't even have to look it up in the table of contents. Just start at the beginning and keep thumbing through till you get to uh, Genesis 28. We're going to be in verse 10, or you can look this up on your favorite smartphone Bible app. Uh, chapter 28, verse 10. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. Now, I want to show a map that shows Jacob's journey from where he and his family were living in Beersheba to where he's headed to in the land of Haran. I'll get to a, a, a better understood map in a second. But you can see here, this is not a walk through Merrill Creek Park. This is a trip that was 450 miles long. That's a long way. 
To give you a, a bit of a, a perspective, it's only about 100 miles from here to New York City. This is 450 miles. And 450 miles is pretty much the exact straight distance between Phillipsburg and Durham, North Carolina. Now, I know you can't see that at all. Uh, <laughs> but you can sort of see here, here's New Jersey, here's Phillipsburg. You go all the way through Philadelphia, through Maryland, uh, through Virginia, here and then just into North Carolina here. That's a, that's a good distance. You just try walking that all on your own. Imagine walking all that distance. Like I said, you'd be walking through the whole Philadelphia area, or maybe you want to kind of bypass that if you're walking. <laughs> uh, entire state of Maryland, entire state of Virginia, and then some into North Carolina. If you know what happens just before this, and, and you can cheat, I'll, I'll let you do that. You can kind of flip forward or flip back a couple of chapters and see what leads up to why Jacob is leaving his hometown, why he's going to Haran. But if you know what happens just before this, you know that this was not a journey that Jacob had decided to up and go on for a vacation. He was literally fleeing for his life here. He had tricked dishonored and shamed his father, the patriarch of the family, and had co uh, committed great thievery by stealing his older brother's legal firstborn blessing. While Jacob's father placed more importance on the faith and keeping the one who would, was now the next in line and continuing the promised bloodline and covenant from being swallowed up by the surrounding pagan culture, his brother outright wanted to kill him. So on pleading from his mother and a blessing from his father, Jacob fled from his family's home in Beersheba to face unknown dangers completely on his own. While Jacob had a twisted heart, there's a certain level of compassion towards Jacob here because he never had to go anywhere by himself ever. This is the very first time he left home. Now, not only does he have to avoid danger on the roads and from wild animals, but he's doing it under the stress of not being overtaken by his furious brother who could go after him at any moment. On top of that, Jacob did not have a GPS to tell him where to go. Yes, technically Jacob's mother had grown up in Haran, but she had made the trip going the opposite way to the area of Beersheba. Unless the family had taken a family vacation there before to visit Rebecca's family, which is doubtful because of the distance and the amount of livestock that would have had to have been looked after while they were gone, Jacob had never been to Haran before. Let's look at this map again. We know from Scripture, and we can see here, that Jacob obviously didn't go straight to Haran in one day. That's humanly impossible to go straight from Beersheba to Haran in one day. It was way too far. We can see on the map here that Jacob probably passed through his grandfather Abraham's old stomping grounds in Hebron. Here we have Beersheba, Hebron, where God visited Abraham to tell him he would have a son within a year. From Beersheba to Hebron is about 30 miles. And why that's important is that that's, according to one biblical scholar, that's about the distance the average person in good shape can walk in the course of traveling for one day. So, Jacob possibly walks for one day and spends the night in Hebron among the people his grandfather once knew so well. Still looking at this map, we can see that it's generally about the same distance from Hebron to the area of Bethel here. That's the next stop up here. 
where we pick up in verse 11. So in verse 11, this is probably what's described here in verse 11 is probably the second night of Jacob's journey. He's already survived two days of walking and one night of resting. We don't know why God chose to encounter Jacob for the first time during the second night as opposed to the first. Maybe Jacob was full of himself when he first started out, seeing himself as a sojourner like his grandfather and father, and even spent the night in the area of his grandfather's old settlement. Then the gravity of his situation starts creeping in and starts weighing on him the second day. The egotistical high was gone, his feet were tired, he didn't get enough sleep the night before, his provisions were starting to look a little bleak, and he barely made it through the second day. And in this state of Jacob's well-being, we pick up with verse 11. He came to a certain place and spent the night there, because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place. Now, you would not see a commercial today advertising, get your best night's sleep by buying this rock and laying your head on this rock. You would not see a commercial for that today. So we'll see why Jacob lays his head on a rock in a second. Jacob could have easily stayed in the area of what would eventually be known as Jerusalem, and that was probably the obvious next stopping point most people would have taken in their journeys. He could have gotten a bed. He could have stayed in a warm place. So why didn't Jacob stay in Jerusalem? Well, at that point, the city of Jerusalem was nowhere near as big and great as the capital of Israel that it would become. Back in Abraham's day and back in Jacob's day, it was known as Salem and here renamed Jebus. Like most other settlements or towns, Jebus was probably not very big. Whereas Jacob could be relatively confident that if he left his father alive in Beersheba when he left, that Esau would not come after him the first night, Jacob could not be so sure the second night. Jacob also knew that Esau knew where he was going because all this was on a main road. So if Isaac had passed away since the day Jacob left, and Jacob had no clue if that was the case or not, and Esau came looking for him, Jacob knew that Jebus uh, was... was, uh, was too small of a place to go unnoticed if Esau came and started knocking on doors. If Esau entered Jebus inquiring about a smooth-skinned man who arrived there, it wouldn't take him very long to locate where Jacob was. So we can see what Jacob is probably thinking about at this point. So Jacob had to go off the beaten path. He didn't even look for shelter to spend the night, as we read in verse 11. He found a remote place in the fields, off the road, found a stone, and used that as a pillow. This was all a matter of survival for Jacob. He didn't even want to risk setting up a tent because he knew that would draw attention from anyone looking for him. But in Jacob's mind, why he lays his head on a rock in the middle of a field is that no one would see a man in the dark in the middle of a field, sleeping on a rock. That would be the very last place anyone would go looking for somebody. But what Jacob didn't realize is that even if he was relatively hidden from human eyes, 
guess whose eyes he wasn't hidden from? God's. And in Jacob's fragile, discouraged, uncomfortable, and so fatigued state that he could even fathom falling asleep on a rock, God visited him. Verse 12. He had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Jesus refers to this very same verse in his conversation with Nathaniel in, in the Gospel of John. Now, what's going on here in this original experience? To us, we read this, and this is probably the first time we've ever heard of something like this, a, a ladder going up to heaven and angels going up on it and coming down on it. But in the ancient world, this concept of a portal between the spiritual realm and the earthly realm was pretty familiar. According to one biblical scholar, the ancient Babylonians would base the construction of their ziggurat or stepped temples on this belief that the gods would use the stepped temple to come down and enter the human world. The ancient Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 was most likely based on this shape and belief as well. So we see why God got so angry at them. With the ancient pagan ziggurat towers, there was even a room at the top with a bed and a table stocked with food for the gods' refreshment as they made their way up and down the tower. Moreover, it was believed that the stairway was for the gods' use only. This whole concept would have been familiar to Jacob as he grew up in this ancient Near Eastern world. We can kind of see Jacob as one of those kids who grew up in a Christian household, with the family dragging them to church, kicking and screaming every Sunday, but who never makes the faith theirs. They grow up being swayed by all the other beliefs of the world and never settling on anything except for not caring, caring much about it. That person is familiar with church, familiar with God, familiar to come on Easter and Christmas Eve, but is also just as familiar with what everyone else believes and is perfectly fine not making a distinction between any of them. So when Jacob sees this ladder, he would understand it as supernatural and what it meant in the pagan beliefs, but he wouldn't necessarily make the connection between it and the one true God. Something may have struck him about this ladder, though. It wasn't gods who were ascending and descending on it. What was it? It was angels, God's messengers, ascending and descending on it. See, God took a spiritual concept that was familiar to Jacob and redeemed it for himself. That's why the first part of the next verse describes this, the first part of verse 13. And behold, the Lord stood above it, or depending on trans your translation, beside it, and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and your descendants. The best translations for, uh, for what we read at the beginning part of verse 13 are either stood above it or stood beside it, or, or Jacob, or him. It may not seem that important, but it is. Because what is God described as? He's not being described as using the ladder, is he? 
He's either standing above it or standing next to it. He either, he's either standing above it or appears next to it or Jacob without using it. The point of God doing this, the point of the image and the verse, is that God was not bound by anything a human could make or not make to interact with humanity. He didn't need anything. He could do whatever he wanted. He was powerful enough that he could bypass human convention and previous human belief to have an encounter with a human being. By it being angels or God's created beings to be used for his missions, ascending and descending the ladder, God was showing that there were no other gods beside him. He was it. The only ones using this were created beings, were angels. He was it. And everything and the other supernatural beings were created by him and were in complete control of him. And this must have been a complete shock to Jacob, who was used to using and manipulating people's beliefs. God is basically making this statement. Other people, and even you, think you can manipulate the spiritual world to either encourage false gods to come bless you, or in your case, to use spirituality to fool other people. But know this, Jacob, you cannot do this with me. The one true, all-powerful, all-knowing God of everything, both seen and unseen. Don't even try it with me. After God makes this symbolic statement by essentially telling pompous Jacob to get over himself and they had better listen to him, God then tells Jacob what he wants him to know. Again, verse 13. I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Jacob has heard about this God possibly from his grandfather Abraham, and definitely from his father Isaac. He's never really taken any of it seriously, though. If he did, he wouldn't have done anything he had done to his brother and would have patiently waited on God's timing. But now Jacob has come face to face with El Elyon, El Olam, Almighty God. And instead of punishing Jacob, as Jacob may have been expecting with such a dramatic entrance, God is actually blessing him. Do you see that? God's not appearing in this dream to punish Jacob for everything that he had done, because that's what Jacob deserved. But what God was doing was he was appearing to bless Jacob. Talk about the mercy of God. Amen? Even though Isaac had reiterated and passed the covenantal blessing on to Jacob, here God himself is establishing it with Jacob. Jacob had no business and had no right to, to this covenant, but God saw fit to choose Jacob to continue his covenant with. To solidify this, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 9, not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, 
but Esau I hated. See, it had nothing to do with who these people were eventually going to become. God had already made the decision. These verses present a very powerful truth, and that is this. Not only is God's plan for us not based on who we are, not based on what we'll do, but in addition, there is ultimately no such thing as something being unfair. That's a very powerful truth for us to come to groups come to grips with. There is only God's will. It has absolutely nothing to do with us or what we think is fair or unfair. Paul goes on to say as much. He says, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. Is God unfair? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or human effort, but on God's mercy. So instead of railing at God when things happen that we don't like or wish didn't happen, all we can do is say, thank you, God, for the mercy and compassion you've had on me. That is a very humbling truth, isn't it? Very humbling. If we truly embrace that, there is no room for blaming God for anything. There is no room for being indignant with God for anything. There is no room for questioning God. What there is only room for is thankfulness for the mercy that he has shown to you. There is only trust in that he's in complete control, that he knows what he's doing, and that he's working everything out according to his plan to make his power known. As we wrap up Thanksgiving weekend, this is yet another thing we should be thankful for. The perfection of God's will for us, no matter how much we agree with it, like it, or understand it. The death of a loved one, the job that's been lost, the house that's been destroyed, or the car that's been wrecked or stolen, or the money that's just disappeared, or the relationship that just can't seem to stay on the right path, or the horrible way you've been treated, or the change in your life that just doesn't seem to be happening yet. All these things are not reasons to blame God or be angry with Him, as difficult as that may be. They're all, and I mean all, opportunities to be thankful for how God is blessing you and how He is showing mercy to you. Very hard pill to swallow, but it's the biblical truth. They're all, and I mean all, opportunities for God's mercy, God's comfort, God's healing, God's power to be known in your life in a greater way than if you hadn't experienced what you had experienced. Remember, when Paul pleaded with God three times to remove from his life that which was causing him extreme pain, what was God's response? His response was, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God knows what he's doing. 
God knows what He's doing and what He's allowing to happen in your life and how He's growing and stretching you. He knows what He's doing. Put your full and complete trust in Him because He is near to the brokenhearted. And He is the God of all comfort. So God chose to carry on His covenantal relationship with Jacob, even though Jacob had no earthly qualifications for it. He has chosen to reiterate the promise of the inheritance of land for him and his descendants in verse 13. And now God reiterates the rest of the promise that he made to Jacob's grandfather Abraham decades before this. Verse 14. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Even though God has given a similar promise to Abraham and to Isaac, God's next promise is specific to Jacob himself. Verse 15. Behold, I am with you, Jacob, and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Man, when God tells you you're going to be completely safe and he's bringing you full circle back to where you are, you believe him, right? You see what God is promising Jacob? He's promising Jacob that he will keep him safe throughout his entire self-imposed exile and will bring him back safely into the land that he's fleeing from his brother's wrath. One other note on this, years later, if Jacob had remembered this promise, there would not have been any need to try to assuage his brother with gifts and then dividing his family up in fear of his brother's murderous retaliation. If he had remembered these words, God is promising right here that he would keep Jacob safe, both from all the dangers that could befall him at any point on this journey and from his brother. God told Abraham to go to the land of Canaan and God would be with him throughout the journey. God told Isaac that as he was in the land he was in, after he moved from Be'er Roy, God will be with him. But here God is telling Jacob, not only am I with you now while you're still in Canaan, but I will be with you throughout the rest of your journey. The whole time you're in Paddan Aram, the journey, you're, the, the journey back to Canaan someday, and the whole rest of the time you're back in Canaan, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. To an already journey-weary Jacob, these words are healing and these words are hope. He does have a future, one that God is giving to him. But it's not one that he's scheming to make himself because God is telling him that he's the one who is going to give him this future. That doesn't mean that Jacob won't experience more difficulty because he will. But that even in the midst of that difficulty, for the first time, he could trust that the one true God was with him. Verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. 
When Jacob awakes, he doesn't shrug the dream off, think to himself, well, that was weird, and go on living the way he always was living. But rather, Jacob is so overwhelmed by the power of God that he cannot fathom any other possibility of what happened other than that he had just had an encounter with El Elyon. Furthermore, he realizes how spiritually blind he's been. That's huge if you know anything about our friend Jacob here. This leads to another overwhelming realization in verse 17. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Jacob realized what he should have. That God was not one to be messed with, and furthermore, didn't need a place made by human hands. God could visit a person whenever and however he wished and make any place the gate of heaven. And Jacob recognized that God had chosen that place to visit him personally. It was now special and sacred ground. For Jacob had had his first encounter with his father's and grandfather's God, and it changed everything for him. Jacob was no longer an ignorant deceiver who knew of God, but never cared about actually knowing and worshiping God. Now he's come face to face with God, realizes who he is, and is terrified. Not only does that God exist, but Jacob has just had a real encounter with him. So Jacob decided he had better honor God and honor his special experience with God. Verses 18 through 19. So Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. He called the name of that place Bethel, house of God. However, previously the name of the city had been Luz. Smart move by Jacob here. The practice of setting up monuments as special worship centers would be important to the Israelite people in the coming years. The anointing of oil set that stone aside as sacred. It was no longer simply a stone Jacob had used for a pillow. That was part of his old life of being a runaway deceptive thief who had been for all intents and purposes just as pagan as the surrounding Canaanites. This rock was now a symbol of everything changing for Jacob. This was Jacob's conversion experience. He now knew God. He now trusted and put his faith in God. And because this was his first experience Jacob had had with God, he names the place he had this encounter with God, Bethel, or house of God. Next, Jacob takes things one step further, verses 20 through 22. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. The stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house and all that you give me I will surely give a tenth to you. For Jacob, one who did not have a relationship with God really at all. Making this promise required much faith. And the first gl at first glance we read this and we say, that's pretty audacious for Jacob to say, to make this statement. If you do this for me, then I'll do this. But think about the faith 
that it even took for Jacob to make that statement. Jacob is promising that if God made good on his promise, which God had just said he would, then Jacob would serve him for, with his life. It's not a promise where Jacob was, Jacob was kind of hoping God wouldn't come through for him. Jacob was fully trusting God would come through for him because he had nothing left to trust in. Jacob wanted something to trust in. And if that proved trustworthy, there was absolutely no reason to not completely devote his faith to God. Most importantly, Jacob would continue the establishment of worship of God on the earth. When everyone else on the face of the earth worshipped everything else. That worship would be evidenced by the physical monument he had just set up and people would be able to worship God there. We know that Jacob would continue to have his ups and downs with his faith in God, just like any of us do throughout the course of our lives. But here's Jacob's conversion experience of casting aside his old pagan way of living his life, scheming and manipulating to get what he wanted. Now, Jacob would trust God and his plan for what he would experience in life. This is the lesson we all must come to grips with, and it usually takes our entire lives. But God makes the same promise to us. We don't need to and really can't trust in ourselves and what we can do about any given situation. Ultimately, we must trust in God's plan for us, no matter what that includes, how difficult the details of that plan are, or how confusing it is. This time of the holiday season can bring up lots of different feelings. Some of those feelings are warm. Some of them are heartbreaking. Some of them are fearful. Some of them are downright infuriating. That's okay. As we wrap up the holiday weekend of Thanksgiving and hurtle headlong into the Christmas season, I want us to do so with the confidence that these closing verses give us. Take these with you into the remainder of this season. Psalm 138.8 The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. I will not accomplish what concerns me. Your faithfulness, Lord, is everlasting. Do not abandon the works of your hands. Psalm 139.16 Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before even one of them came to be. There's God's plan. The Lord Almighty has sworn, surely as I have planned, so it will be. And I, as I have purposed, so it will happen. Romans 8.28 And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Romans 8.18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth, don't even try, they're not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. And then lastly, this all too famous verse, but all too true verse. 
Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. Don't try to figure it out on your own. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage that we find in your word. This experience of a man who, for all intents and purposes, was thoroughly pagan, just as pagan as the surrounding Canaanite people. But you visited him. You shocked him. You revealed yourself to him. And in that experience, in your mercy, you made the same promise to him that you made to his forebears. And Lord, all these promises we just read, you make to us. That you have your plan. Your plan is perfect. Nothing will thwart that plan. And you work all things in our lives together for good. All we need to do as difficult as it sounds, is trust you. Is just say, God, even though I don't get anything that's going on right now, I trust that you do. I trust that your plan is perfect. I trust that you are perfect. I trust that you will have mercy on me, and I trust that there will be a day, no matter what befalls me in this life, that I will wake up in your presence and you will say, well done, good and faithful servant. May we all take the promise, this promise of faith with us throughout this upcoming season uh, with all its uh, emotional roller coasters and ups and downs that we may anchor our souls into the peace and comfort of who you are and the promises you make to us. I pray that we would take this peace with us into this next week and the rest of this upcoming season. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with me as we close.